0: will come and preach. Family, and by teachers of the law. This reading can be found on page 1005 in the Pew Bibles. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning, shall we pray before we start? Dear God, I pray that you would come and you would encounter us now. May you speak to the depths of our hearts and the workings of our minds. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name. Now I have to admit that when I first started to look at this passage, I was a little bit baffled. The words on the page just seemed to blur and no sense seemed to come from what I was reading. And in hindsight, I think it's because I found it hard to match together the theme which was recognising the activity of Jesus and the scripture. And I think I found it hard to match up because for me it's no good to simply just recognise the activity of Jesus because we're called to live it out to and join in. And it's a challenging passage with far reaching consequences that for my life I perhaps I feel I don't or didn't have the energy to do anything about. And it's a passage that when you look closely reveals the best of Jesus and yet the cost of being him. It reveals encouragements to us, but also the piercing reality of what we're called to do as a result of what Jesus does. And these verses that we've just heard daunt me. Because, like most other encounters with Jesus, it tells me to look somewhere other than myself, beyond what I know and beyond where I'm comfortable. And that's because the activity of Jesus as recorded in scripture and living in each one of us now reveals no less than the kingdom of God, a sign and living reality of not what only is to come, but also what's possible now. And this is scary. It's scary because I've got to trust and we've got to trust that despite the world being a dark place most of the time, light is possible. And we're someone to help carry that. And it's scary because I know that this will cost me and will cost us everything, just as it cost Jesus everything. And it's scary because I know that for the sake of God's kingdom, we have to set aside differences and to include those that perhaps we'd rather not want anything to do with. But as I so often forget, God's mission is a divine privilege and is worth going headfirst into. Now, in order to live out God's mission, in being Jesus' hands and feet, and to act as he did and still does, means that we have to live out the gospel just as Jesus did. In Mark, we see that Jesus had begun his ministry in full vigour, healing on the Sabbath, casting out demons, eating with sinners, and appointing the twelve disciples. His ministry is seen to be a captivating and powerful microcosm of the kingdom of God, that liberates, frees and heals, proclaims, recovers and saves, challenges, encourages and resurrects, redeems, includes and loves. And we can see from the passage that was read this in a nutshell. In the parable from verses 26 to 28, we see that Jesus' subversion of the strong man or Satan in the parable frees the plunder, God's creation and us, his people. The activity of Jesus lives out this gospel truth, that Jesus saves and frees us from that which seems too strong to overcome. And this activity of Jesus should be the same in us, but so often we miss what it's about despite desiring it always. Someone called Frederick Buchener said this, if only we had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness and beauty, is as close as breathing and is crying out to born both within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the Kingdom of God is what we hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realise that it's what we're starving to death for. The Kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. And we catch sight of it when at some moment of crisis, a strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. And the kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home, and whether we realize it or not, I think all of us are homesick for it. And the book of Ecclesiastes also points to this reality, that God has set eternity in our hearts. And for me, I find this a very encouraging fact because the world and the people in it and the task we are set seems a whole lot less daunting when you know that deep down within every human is a desire and will to live a life aligned with God, even if that looks different. In 2014, there were 2,340 people referred as potential victims of trafficking to the national referral mechanism in the UK. In reality, this number is much, much higher. But people identified in this way are only given 45 days to reflect and recover from their trauma and ordeal. And because of this, many become re-victimized. Ella is an example of one of these victims. She had been a prostitute in Thailand since her teenage years And was trafficked to London in order to serve in a brothel. When she left the brothel in London she was neither prepared nor capable about talking about her situation and as a result Ella was deemed ineligible for support from the national referral mechanism. She was extremely vulnerable and yet could not access care and a safe place for her to stay when she needed it most. Now Ella's story is known because of a young woman named Emily who had originally met her out in Thailand. Because of Ella's story, Emily committed to setting up Ella's home, a house to enable women to recover from their sexual exploitation and support them back into life, community, and freedom. Simply recognizing the activity of Jesus would not have brought this about. Emily had to do the activity of Jesus. She had to live the gospel out. And because of Emily, the hunger for the kingdom of God to be met, to be known is met in that home. But as with all endeavours and adventures with God, or indeed most things in life, there's a cost to seeing this kingdom come and living out the gospel. At the beginning of the passage, we see that Jesus enters a house for some food, but is so overcome with the crowd that was gathering and the demands that they brought, that he could not even eat. And to top this off, his family wanted to take charge of him, claiming he was out of his mind. Now, the same word here that is used for charge is the same in the arrest of Jesus and of John the Baptist. His family meant business and wanted to stop Jesus in his tracks. Perhaps they were concerned for his welfare and the fact he didn't have time to eat. Or perhaps it was because those he called to follow him were fishermen, tax collectors, betrayers and angry men. Or perhaps they wanted to restrain Jesus because he left his family trade to do what was unknown. Or because they knew what the teachers of the law were saying about him, that he was possessed by Satan himself. Sometimes when we live out how Jesus lived and live out what God asks of us, it feels very costly we can become overwhelmed with the needs of those around us and be subject to slander and restraint. And alongside this, Jesus tells us to ask, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, when I was at school, I knew from an early age that I wanted to do youth work. And because of this, all my GCSE options and A-levels were geared towards this. I picked topics like psychology, child development, sociology, and religion. However, I came up against a lot of opposition from my friends and family and teachers who said these weren't academic enough for me and that I was wasting my time. I was told not to aim for my youth work course, which would accept me on two E's, but to aim for Oxford or Cambridge. And for a while I toiled with the prestige of being an Oxbridge candidate, but remembering God's call on my life went against what was expected and did youth work and theology at university. I was told continuously that I was crazy and later on at churches that I've served at my youth work methods have also been seen as such, despite God clearly being seen in the young people's chaotic lives through the work that I and many others were doing. And this ministry has been costly to me. At times it's cost me my reputation, prestige, hopes and dreams and even relationships with friends, family and the church for a while. But I know that what I do amongst young people is how I can live out the gospel. In reality, the cost for me has been quite minute, but for others that I know, it's meant clearing their bank accounts, moving abroad and living a lonely and solitary life. You could argue that sometimes in living out the gospel, the greatest cost feels like the reactions from those that are meant to be supporting you, the church community, family and friends. And this is why unity in the church is so important in encouraging others in God's mission and in Jesus' activity. Having been provoked by the teachers of the law, who said that he was possessed by Beelzebub and having nothing to eat. Jesus spoke to those who critiqued him in parables about this issue of unity. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. But then Jesus goes on to say something much more troubling. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now what Jesus says here is an important challenge to us as a church. How often has the church or we as individuals Slated what's happening in fresh expressions or traditional forms of church as something that isn't of God? How many of us have steered clear of that which we don't understand because it simply doesn't fit with our ideology? How many of us have said that the way another interprets scripture, worship or church is blasphemous? And how many of us have critiqued how something is being done or run? Now in the past, divorce and women in leadership have all been cited as demonic and ungodly. And today we could say the same for same-sex relationships and marriage. Now these are not nice examples, but I have heard all of them said and I've seen all of them done. And Jesus starkly warns us against doing this, even if what you believe is demonic. Just as he did to those who were around him on that day in Galilee, he warns us. When we do these things, there's a danger of accusing the Holy Spirit of being demonic. There's a danger of saying, God couldn't possibly use them or that to bring about his kingdom. It must be something other. God couldn't possibly do what we think he could do. There's a danger that we can limit what God can do in us and in each other, because we can't imagine that God's thoughts aren't our thoughts and his ways aren't our ways. God is above and beyond what we could ever imagine and he constantly uses the most unlikely of ways means and people to bring about his kingdom and this brings me to my final point that is that the activity of Jesus requires being part of an inclusive community from the outside It might be hard to see how Jesus is provoking this inclusive mentality and culture to those he's speaking to in this passage and to us now. A cost of Jesus' ministry and of ours appears to be to disown those who are our family, our flesh and our blood. It must have felt like a scathing comment to be told by someone that your son and brother has said, who are my mother and my brothers? I know that if my sisters had said that to me, I'd be quite upset. But with that comment comes a realisation of grace. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And in this moment, Jesus extends family and discipleship to beyond blood and beyond gender. To those who might have lost fathers, brothers, mothers and daughters, or have missed out on being disciples of rabbis and teachers because of their gender, hope is given as they follow God's way of living, acting and being. Jesus says, blood and gender isn't everything. And today we could perhaps extend that to a few more people groups that we as a church tend to exclude. For some of the young people that I work with, in fact most of them, particularly on a Thursday, their families don't understand their decision to come to church or to try and live a different life. For a few in particular, their families are hostile, even if that meant missing out on their baptisms and confirmations, as they weren't seen to be good enough to be a Christian. Their lives didn't necessarily match up with their beliefs. But that's the joy of Jesus and what he does. He accepts and includes those who aren't good enough, and he uses them to bring about his kingdom. And Jesus says that those who do God's will and try and live his way and have a desire to follow him are no longer outsiders, as family and friends might think, but holders of secrets of the kingdom. And the kingdom, as Jesus says in another parable, is within them. And so we see that in a passage that could so easily become bogged down in an academic debate over what the unforgivable sin is, the reality of grace is made clear. God's mission and perfect, dynamic, loving kingdom is extended to all a bunch of ragamuffins, misfits and failures because of how Jesus has defeated Satan through living the perfect life and living and dying the most terrible death. And God does this in ways that do not fit with how we would like to see things work, but in ways that demonstrate God's love and grace in all its fullness. In the passage it was through exorcism and today it could be through an innumerable number of things. And all God asks of us, is that we bear with each other, open our minds to that which we have not yet experienced and seen, and include those who are just as broken as we are. And yes, there is a massive cost, but if we all lived this way, life would be worthy of heaven.